you are your reflexes, how you respond. They're either going to send you down a hole of anxiety, despair, time-wasting, sexual sin, gossip, or praise, thanks, and worship. Welcome, everyone. Good to be with you. So one of the the practices that I do every day, I do it every morning, is I use the the Core Discipleship Journal that has three lines for writing out things you can be grateful for. And I choose one of those three lines to be an organ system of the body. So I, I pick one organ system and I, I just I think about that organ system and what life uh, would be like without it. It's very easy to, to take for granted the things that God has given us. I think about the design, the intricacy of that particular organ system, and, and then I thank God for giving us that organ system. There's a quote that I often, I often say this in my own mind, which is, what if you woke up today and had only the things that you thank God for yesterday. What if you woke up today and had only the things that you thank God for yesterday? And so it's a, it's a good challenge for us to just to be grateful for, especially the things that are easy to forget about. So I'd like us to think right now for a, a minute or two about one organ system, which I'm guessing you haven't thought about, uh, which is an aspect of your neurological system, which is your reflex system. So again, I don't know how many of you have recently thought about your reflex system and how incredibly valuable it is and how, how if you didn't have it, your life would be very different, and I'll explain in a moment. So as it turns out, you, you, have, you have these nerves in your body, and I, I, I didn't actually realize a lot of this until college or medical school, some, somewhere along the line, that... Your, your nerves, your longest nerves, are about a meter in length. So they're several feet long. It's one cell that's just really, really thin and long. And the, the, the most famous reflex, when people hear the word reflex, you think of how the, you're the doctor takes the little hammer and hits your knee there, and your knee kicks out when he or she hits your, your leg. And, and it feels a little uncomfortable, right? Because it's it, like it happens without you deciding to do it, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I like that. Um, the the way that system works, it's called monosynaptic. There's only there's one nerve that runs from the sensory part of that tendon up to your up to your spinal cord, and then there's another nerve that goes down to your muscle that causes that jerk. And so it's literally just two cells that are talking to each other. One neuron, there's a synapse, another neuron, and then it reflexes there, which makes it incredibly fast. So the, the, the fastest conscious circuit that you can make in terms of response time is about 200 milliseconds, so a fifth of a second, which is fast. But your, these kinds of reflexes operate at around 80 milliseconds, so it's more than twice as fast because it doesn't have to go all the way up to your brain and have activity happen there. It's all happening just locally there. And so 
you might think, well, why does the doctor do that? And why are my reflexes so important? As it turns out, and again, you may not know this, but you, you are using your reflexes all the time, all day long. So even just standing straight, you're constantly using all of these reflexes so you don't fall over. And you don't think about it, but if you don't have your reflex system intact, you couldn't actually stand straight up for very long. You would, you would topple over very quickly. Even more impressive, when you fall, okay, so you don't think about it again, but like your hand will go out or your, your muscles will, will contract in a certain way to avoid bone breakage, to avoid serious injury there. If it were not for your reflexes, you would have so many broken bones or be dead uh, because you just, you just, your body is, is not consciously thinking, okay, I'm falling, I need to extend this arm. No, that's not how you, it just, it just happens really quickly, right? And so our, our reflexes are something that we should be thanking God for as often as we can because they're, they're so hidden, they're so under the surface. And what I want us to do is I want us to think about reflexes today as we move through the next section of Matthew. Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read verses 25 to 27. It's a very short section here. Let's read this and uh, turn in your Bibles with me to this passage. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage that is such a, an important passage for us to understand you, to understand the Son, to understand the nature of knowledge and how we can grow close to you. I pray, Father, for eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we would understand the, the deep Trinitarian truths that are latent in this passage, as well as how we can find ourselves as, as one who has been, been given knowledge, has been given revelation by the Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so by way of background, hopefully you remember from last time, we looked at Jesus's woes. Remember how he proclaimed woes to those three cities in the passage right before this? There's a, there was a triangle of cities that we looked at that are on the north side of the Sea of Galilee that uh, represents the area that Jesus was from. He had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. And in that passage, Jesus pronounces woes on these three cities because they had not repented. He doesn't curse them, and I was, I was careful to point that out. He doesn't curse them, but he has woe over them because of what will happen on the day of judgment. And this whole section of Matthew, from Matthew chapter 11 through the end of 12, is going to be a bunch of different responses to Jesus 
And we're supposed to examine ourselves and how we are responding to Jesus. Thus far, we have seen mostly negative responses to Jesus. Uh, We saw that John the Baptist's disciples were questioning, hey, is this the one? Is this the one that, that we're actually waiting for? We saw the Jewish leadership was hostile to Jesus, particularly in chapter 9. We saw, of course, in the section right before this, that the people who lived in the towns right around Jesus, most of the people seem to have seen the miracles and heard the sermons, but they haven't followed him. So, so here you are, try to place yourself in Jesus' shoes at this point, and you have done all these miracles, you have poured yourself out, you have uh, tried to communicate as best you can the truths of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, salvation, and then he's met with rejection. So this would be very disheartening. And so my first point for my message is how we handle disappointment. And my point is that Jesus responded to disappointment by praising God for his ways. Jesus responded to disappointment by praising God for his ways. Okay, so remember the background, right? He's just given these woes to his hometown, right? This would have not been the most encouraging uh, development here. And I think a lot of us naturally would have felt very discouraged, very disappointed, maybe even have wanted to give up. But what Jesus does here and I'll read this again. He says, I thank you, Father, after he's just had this rejection, just, just talking about this rejection, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Okay? So what is going on here? How is Jesus reflexively, there's that word I'm going to try to build on, reflexively responding to disappointment and to rejection by thanking and praising God? This is an example of where Jesus praises God. He thanks God for his judgments. Okay, so that's a, it's an odd expression, but we see this especially in the book of Psalms. So I'm sure you have, the vast majority of you in the room here have read in the Psalms where people are praising God for his judgments. And I don't know about you, but like, I think for a lot of my life, I read those and I'm like, that's a weird thing to praise God for. Why would you praise God for his judgments? I'll just read an example here. Psalm 48, 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Psalm 105, 7, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Okay, it might seem strange, but what Jesus is doing here is following in that tradition. And he sees the way that the world works. He sees the way that things are unfolding. And he praises God for how God has ordered the world. Okay, (laughs) This is not the way that most of us would handle disappointment, right? But Jesus, of course, is doing something here that we we need to learn from. He experiences disappointment, he experiences rejection, and he praises God for his ordering of the world. Okay, now, it can be hard to understand, for sure. This can definitely be hard to understand. We may not like it, but we are supposed to be praising God for the patterns that he has ordained in the world. As I mentioned, I read from the New King James, it says here, Jesus says, I thank you, Father. Some translations say, I praise you, Father. The Greek word is kind of a blend of the two. It's, it's very close to either word. And then what right after that, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so there's a pattern in this as well. 
which is he uses the term father and then he uses another description of God involving his power over heaven and earth. Okay, hopefully that reminds you of something that we've already seen in Matthew, which is Jesus' command to the disciples on the Lord's Prayer, where our Father, the one in the heavens, Pater Hemon, Oentois Uranois. So it's, it's the, the same exact pattern, Father first, and then some appellation of God with reference to his power. I love this. I love that the reflex that Jesus has is this, this term of intimacy first that, that draws him into the heart of God. And then once he's there conversing with God, he immediately goes to reference his power. Okay, so I, I, I love this. And I want us to think here about our reflexes in the face of disappointment and difficulty. So to recap here, first an expression of intimacy Father is probably the best one. And then he goes to a title that expresses God's power, okay? So notice, of course, in all this, Jesus, after pronouncing these woes, doesn't say, woe is me. He could have done that, right? He said, woe is Chorazin, woe is Bethsaida, woe is Gabron, woe is me. I've done all this work, I've done all these healings, I've done all this work, and nobody's listening to me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, life is hard. He doesn't turn to the anesthetics of the day. Uh, I'm hungry, give me some food. Maybe some food will take away the edge here. I can identify with that. Oh, where are my friends? Where's my family? I need to talk to my mom. Doesn't say, oh, YouTube. I wish I could spend some time just clicking away and drowning my, my sorrows there. He says, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father. So. I want to ask the question here for us to to notice, to maybe historically notice, what are your thought reflexes in the face of disappointment? I mentioned some of the classic examples of feeling sorry for yourself, commiserating, uh, looking for some kind of way to dull the pain. There's so many strategies, taking out your phone, clicking around, social media, whatever it is. There's so many reflexes that you can you can fall into in the face of disappointment. One of the things that I'm very grateful to my parents for is, is the way that they, they often speak. Uh, so in, in, in my, my parents speak a language called Malayalam and often my dad, mostly my dad, would just kind of spontaneously when he was, it, it's almost like this, this, uh, this sense of like, this is how I, I relax, or this is how I just, I express myself, almost in a breathing sort of way. He would say, in Malayalam, he would also often say, stotram, which, which means like, like praise there, or uh, a lot of times he would say, appa, and that's, that means that's father, um, or hallelujah, that obviously is the same word in Malayalam in, in English, or sometimes, thank you, Jesus. And Laura has commented on how I do the same thing. I just kind of like, I'll sit down on the couch and I'll just like say one of those phrases. And I never really thought about it as much growing up because my parents, my dad especially, just did that a lot. This pattern of just just saying something like that, stotram, appa, something like that. And I'm very grateful because somehow they taught that to me. And I'm, gra- I'm very grateful for that modeling. And here we can see Jesus 
doing that, right? Jesus here in the face of disappointment is modeling, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Father, in the midst of a, a hard, a hard uh, scene. There's an author who I often talk about, who I think is just a, a really intriguing person. He's no longer alive. His name is Viktor Frankl. He was a Jew who survived the, the Holocaust. He was a psychologist slash neurologist. And, and he made it through the Holocaust. Very, very difficult condition. And he, he talks about this famous concept between the gap between stimulus and response. I don't know if you've heard that expression from him but it's gold. And he, he basically talks about how, actually I'll read you the quote. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Okay, so basically, if you think about it here, stimulus and response, think, think about the doctor who hits your, hits your knee, and that's the stimulus, what's gonna be the response? And there's a little gap there. It's a very small gap. But in the middle of that gap is what makes you who you are. You are, you are, the vast majority of you is the sum total of your reflexive responses. Uh, this happens in milliseconds. Not seconds, it happens in milliseconds. Uh, I, I used to have a really bad habit of biting my nails. When I was young, I used to bite my nails. And when I would get stressed out when I was bored I would just you know just kind of chomp on my nails and bad habit my parents used to say stop biting your nails and of course my nails looked hideous because the cuticles were like dangling and it's all jagged on the edges you know just never looked good sometimes I remember when I bit my nails a lot my stomach wouldn't feel right because I think there was something in my nails that I was consuming that was not healthy and my parents for years told me, stop biting your nails. And I didn't really listen. But one day, I, just, I determined to stop. I just decided, enough is enough. I'm going to stop. And I started to pay attention to stimulus and response. And I started to, to put something else in that. It took a few weeks, but eventually I got there and I have stopped biting my nails. It's now been about 30 years of, since I haven't bitten my nails, so thankfully. Um, but... But it was, I have to admit, it was hard. And like just the, the, the years, probably 10 years, my parents said, stop biting your nails, stop biting your nails. I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be a good idea. Um, but I never, never did. It was just too wired into my, to my mind. It was too much of a, a basic reflex to face stress and disappointment. So again, I want us to think about in our mind when we face disappointment, when we face stress, what do we do? In those few milliseconds, that happen after that, maybe seconds, but just that very brief time, what do you do? Is your mentality to retreat? Is it to anesthetize the pain? Is it to think, oh, I got a, I need a dopamine hit? Is it to go for coffee? Is it to go for, what is it? What is your, what is your response? The, the very next thing I mentioned that Jesus does is he says, Lord of heaven and earth. He uses this great reminder of God's power. He lifts up his eyes to the hills where his help comes from. And he recognizes that God is Father, and not just Father, but Lord of heaven and earth. And I, I think that this, this progression from intimacy to power in the moment of disappointment or stress or some kind of, of moment of anxiety 
has to be one of the healthiest responses that we can cultivate in our spiritual lives, right? If you can actually build this reflex into your life through, through practice, this has to be one of the best responses that you can have, one of the most significant forces forward in your spiritual life. You might be disappointed at the behavior of a child, a spouse, a friend, a roommate, a work colleague, a neighbor, somebody on the road. There's a lot of nasty drivers here in Boston. Um, had a bad experience yesterday. But what should be your response? In everything, give thanks. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then to recognize that God's ways are right. You are your reflexes, how you respond. They're either going to send you down a hole of anxiety, despair, time-wasting, sexual sin, gossip, or praise, thanks, and worship. Okay, my second point here is a very simple point. This is one that hardly even needs stating, but it's, it's important because it's part of the structure of this passage, which is that God passes over the proud and visits the humble. God passes over the proud and visits the humble. Okay, so, so why does Jesus praise the Father here? Why does he praise the Lord of heaven and earth? It's because he has hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed to the babe. So I have to admit, I, when I was looking at this passage this morning, I was thinking, what are these things? What is the antecedent of these things here? And it's just tavta. It's a very simple Greek word. I was what is this? And, and I think the answer is, because it's somewhat unclear, I think it's probably the whole of what has gone before it. If you remember in Matthew 11 too, John the Baptist hears about the works of Christ, the, the erga of Christ. And in the broader context, these things is probably the works and, and the, the words, the words and deeds of the Messiah. And most people don't understand. Um, so we have to ask the question, who are the wise and prudent and who are the babes? All right, let's stop, start with the babes first. That's easier. All right, so who are the babes? What is the standard Greek word for baby? Good. Brephos. That's right. That is the standard Greek word for baby. And Brephos is anything like infant or baby. Just Well, very close to our English word baby would be a good example here. That is not actually the word that is used here. And so I don't like, I don't love this translation of babes that the New King James has because I also was thinking when I was reading this, I was like, oh, they're gonna, he, Jesus is using the word brephos, but he doesn't use that word. He uses a different word here, which is the word napios. And napios, if you look it up, is, can be anything from a baby all the way to the age of puberty. It's a, it's a, it's a much broader range than our English word baby. So in, in Galatians, for example, um, that word napios is used about someone who's a minor who's like gonna be heir soon. It uses that same word there. So it can be baby, but it can also be a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old. Um, it, it, it has a much broader word. I think probably a, a more accurate, I'm not, I think, I know a more accurate word, it's not quite as poetic, would be something like minor. <laughs> Minor wouldn't sound very good in, in, uh, in the Bible, but uh, minor would be a more accurate representation of what Jesus means here. And maybe even better to get the connotation would be dependent, right? So when you file your taxes, you have to fill out how many dependents you have in your household, right? 
And that's basically how many napioi you have in the house. Uh, so that is, that's what Jesus is referring to here. So, so think minor, think dependent when he's making the statement, not to the wise and prudent, but to the dependents and to the minors uh, that God is revealing these things. Okay, so what is that? Well, we are going to see this, I don't know, half a dozen times or so in the book of Matthew, that Jesus loves to use terms for youth or little or something along those lines to describe his disciples. We, we already saw this in Matthew 10.42. He talked about the little ones. Remember that? Uh, the little ones were spoken of as being his disciples. I'll give you another example of this. We're going to, don't turn to this, but in Matthew 21, the crowds are shouting out on Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest. And remember how the leaders say, tell your people to be quiet. And what Jesus says in verse 16, he says, out of the mouth of babes, God has perfected praise. Same word, napioi there that he uses. So obviously it's not literal babies that he's talking about here. He's talking about his disciples. So there's a tremendous affinity that Jesus has to, to using words that describe minors, children, little people, to, to be his disciples. Okay, so thankfully, actually, in, in this passage, there's almost nothing that is disputed between ancient and modern commentators. It's very, it's, it's, it's very harmonious in general. A couple small points of difference here. But what is he talking about here when he says, I didn't come, I, uh, Father, I'm, I'm praising you that you have, you have hidden things from the wise and prudent but revealed it to babes. It's very similar to what we saw in chapter 9, verse 13, where Jesus says, that I've come to call the righteous, sorry, I've, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We remember that, right? And of course, I think we all know that what he's saying is, I didn't come to call those who think that they are righteous. Uh, I came to call those who know that they are sinners, right? That's, that's really the force of what Jesus is saying in there. Similarly, just like that in chapter 9, he's saying here, uh, I'm praising you, Father, that you have hidden these things from those who think that they are wise and have revealed them to, to those who know that they are dependents. That, that's the sense of what Jesus is saying here. The term wise, uh, sophos, is the word closely related to the word wisdom, Sophia, is, is not a negative term in and of itself. It can be in certain contexts, which those contexts are, are more about the limitations of human achievement. In contrast, the little ones, the, the babes, the minors, the dependents, are those who depend on revelation. And, of course, minor is such a great term here because... This is like one of the, the defining features of being a child, right? Is that you're not self-sufficient. And they expect breakfast and lunch and their clothes washed and dinner and someone to hug them and someone to provide for them. And it's just, it's not even a thought that they would somehow be self-sufficient in these ways. Being, to be a minor is to be dependent. So that's really what Jesus is speaking about here. So the contrast is not age and size, but between those who are self-sufficient and those who are dependent, those who love to be taught, those who love to be, to be, to be those who are receiving. 
it's very consistent with what we've seen in earlier teachings in Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. All of these are harmonious. God's ways, God's things don't come to those who are neutral or those who think they're wise or who are sophisticated. It comes to those who are hungry, 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 hungry for what is above. God's knowledge is for those who are hungry, who are dependent, and who are receptive. So again, this highlights, this whole statement here highlights this upside-down nature of the kingdom. In a world where the meek inherit the earth, it is the dependents, not those who profess to be wise, who gain access to Jesus' truths. Okay, I, I'm going to go as far as to say that I think this is one of the top three themes in the whole Bible. Right? It, it's just ubiquitous. It is hard to miss this theme that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The lowly are lifted up. It is so hard to overstate the frequency and the significance of this theme in both Testaments, Old and New Testament. Uh, go back and read sometime Hannah's song in the beginning of First Samuel. The whole theme of that is this inversion where God takes down the mighty and the strong and the powerful and he lifts up the poor and the weak and the humble. And of course, as that book unfolds, we see these three trajectories. We see uh, that that happens to, uh, to well, more, more than three times, but it happens to Saul who starts off very humble, becomes proud, then his downfall. Then David does really well when he's humble, uh, gains the throne, succeeds for a while, but he then becomes proud and his whole family unravels. And Solomon does so well in the beginning, gains in power and then gets proud, falls into idolatry and crashes. Uh, there's other actually minor characters that that happens to as well in the book. Eli would be another example. Um, I'll just read you a couple of verses here just to cement this home. Again, I think you know this, but it's worth hearing directly from the word of God. This is in Job 12, 24 to 25. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of earth and makes them wander in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. So that's about how God is opposed to the proud. And then here, Isaiah 57, 15, thus says, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who is contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. What a beautiful contrast there. God says, I live in the highest place, but where do I actually dwell? In the lowliest place. God has two thrones in heaven above and in the hearts of the humble. Isaiah 66, 2. For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Okay, so Jesus here is, is reiterating this theme in slightly different vocabulary, but the same basic concept. So of course, we need to ask ourselves specifically, what does this look like? What does it look like to be a minor, a dependent, someone who is truly humble and poor in spirit? I've, I've talked about this a few times in Matthew now. But we need to pay special attention to the commands that require humility, to the commands that are premised on humility. 
uh, again, there's several messages I've given here, which I won't repeat, but just examples here. Confession is an excellent way to express uh, humility and deepen humility. Being, being bold before others. Uh, Jesus had talked about, uh, if you confess me before others, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Admonishment, evangelism, uh, modesty and fashion, physical postures of humility, lifting up holy hands or kneeling, being willing to enter into suffering, being willing to associate with people who aren't quote-unquote cool. Uh, so many ways that we can express and deepen our commitment to humility. And of course, I think that it only makes sense that, that God that Jesus here is praising God for his judgment that the proud would be passed over and the humble would be rewarded because how should we not be humble when we contemplate the world that we live in, when we contemplate the Lord of heaven and earth, when we contemplate our reflexes, when we contemplate, yesterday I was, I was thinking about our spleen for a long time. Like, man, the spleen is such a great organ, right? If once you study the spleen, and if you even understand a little bit of the spleen, you should be just blown away by, by God's power and you should be walking around in utter humility. All of our sins, all of our repeated failures, all of our overconfidence, shouldn't that make us humble? And so when he says, when Jesus says in verse 26, it seemed good in your sight, the, that's the New King James. The ESV something sa- says something like it was your good pleasure or something like that. Um, it, this is not any kind of Calvinist type statement where it's like, okay, I'm picking you and you and you. It's about how God has ordained a way. God has ordained a, a track, a category of access to him. And that category is humility, right? So when, when we speak of God's election, there is a sense that God has made an election. Not, not so much in the sense of arbitrarily picking individuals out of a group, but of determining a path that leads to life and to knowing him. So it's, it's good in God's sight, not in some kind of secret sovereign decree that he's arbitrarily gonna choose one person and another, but that he's chosen certain categories or paths where if you walk in those paths, you will be the recipient of knowledge. Okay, two more points. My third point is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of an outpouring of knowledge. Okay, so you might think, what, what am I talking about here? So I wanna, I wanna spend just a few minutes on this because it's, it's actually very, very important, as, especially in Matthew, this theme of Jesus as the fulfiller of Old Testament prophecies. Before I jump into that, um, I wanna point out that there is actually a verse in the Old Testament that uses those words wise and prudent uh, in, in Greek, in the Septuagint, in basically the same way that it's used here. And this verse is so important that Paul quotes from it as well. Okay, so Jesus draws from it, and Paul quotes from it. So the verse is Isaiah 29, 14, and I'll read it here. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Okay, very interesting. So this passage in Isaiah uses the same pair of words that Jesus just used here in, in Matthew 12. And he is, 
uh, Isaiah is talking about how there's going to be this time where God does this marvelous work when the, the, the wisdom of the wise is going to be torn down and the understanding of the prudent will be hidden. Okay, so there was this pre-built expectation of this day of leveling, but it actually gets better than that and more explicit here. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, so there's this expectation that one day the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God, the, the, the glory of the knowledge of the glory of Jehovah. Jeremiah 31:34 says, "Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest," says the Lord, "for I will forgive their iniquity and I will rem- remember their sin no more." There's many other passages we could have looked at here, but bottom line, there's this hope in the last day. There's this eschatological hope that there's going to be this outpouring of knowledge and and it's going to be the the hallmark of this new work that God is doing. Okay, so Let's look now at this, uh, look again at this passage, and let's try to reread it in the light of this concept, because I want you to to see the significance of what Jesus is, is doing in this passage here. So he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, that's exactly what was mentioned in Isaiah, and have revealed them to babes. Okay, so these things, it's the, the totality of the work that Jesus has done thus far. Even though, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by the Father, and no one knows, listen to that word, knows, the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay, so this passage is the fulfillment of that eschatological hope described in in Isaiah, in Habakkuk, in many other places, that the wisdom of the wise perishes and knowledge is poured out on the new community of Yahweh followers, which in this case is, of course, identical to the new followers of Jesus here, the dependent ones. The hope of the last days is fulfilled and the knowledge of God is channeled through this man, Jesus. So in 27, it basically says, only the Son knows the Father, only the Father knows the Son. And the tale of 27 is what's going to be my, my final point here, uh, my fourth and final point, which is that man's distrust contrasts with the mutuality of the Father-Son relationship. Okay, I know it's a mouthful, but I need to explain this. Man's distrust contrasts with the mutuality of the Father-Son relationship. Okay, so let's look at 47. Let's expand on 47 here. Oh, sorry, on 27, because this is, this is a very, very important verse. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay, so we read over these verses way too quickly. And I, I want now to, to set our, uh, a little bit of a background so we can properly understand this. Back in chapter 9, what did, we, what did we see? We saw when Jesus forgave sins, the people were like, who's this guy? This guy can't forgive sins. You know, that, that response when he, hears the, when he uh, forgives the paralytic. 
It was very, very hard for the people at that time to treat Jesus as anything more than just a good teacher. He was definitely an authoritative authoritative teacher, but he could not do uh, much more in the people's eyes than rise above that status of being just an excellent teacher and some kind of a miracle worker. To forgive sins was, was hard for them to swallow. But here in 27, he makes an astonishingly high Christologic statement. He says, all things have been delivered to, be, to me by my Father. Okay, so that, number one, kind of anticipates the Great Commission to some degree, right? Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So something similar there. And he goes on to say, no one knows the Son except the Father. And then he says, look at this, no, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What? No one knows the Father except the Son. Okay, so this verse here was very studied in the early church, and people marveled over this because of how high of a statement Jesus is making with respect to his own identity. Modern writers call it the Johannine Thunderbolt. Okay, so what does that mean? So the Johannine Thunderbolt is basically a statement that most of the time when you think of these really high statements, about uh, on Christology, you think of John, right? John is the one who has easily the most number of statements about Jesus' divinity, etc. But but in general, in the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's not as is commonly thought, not thought to be as strong of a of a, a high Christology here. But this shatters that, and so people call this the Johannine thunderbolt because they say, "Whoa, this feels like this is something that should come from John." not from Matthew here, because he's saying that no one knows God except me, right? That's a very, very, very high statement. Um, so this is, this is something we're going to come back to in a moment here. But there is this mutual knowing of the Father knowing the Son and the Son knowing the Father that is this almost exclusionary type knowing here. It's because he's saying nobody except the Father knows me. Nobody except me knows the Father. There's this mutual exclusionary relationship between Father and Son that exists that is especially intimate. And of course, we know that the word know, K-N-O-W in English, kinosko in Greek, yada in Hebrew, that in, in biblical literature, know is much more than a head knowledge. I'll read you a quote from one author who says it well. He says, in biblical literature, to know is more a matter of relationship than of intellectual attainment. It is personal rather than formal. I like that. To know is more a matter of relationship than intellectual attainment. It is personal rather than formal. So if somebody were to say, I know know Laura, it would be less knowing facts about her and knowing her as a person uh, we know that the word know, K-N-O-W, was used in the Old Testament to describe intimacy between husband and wife. They knew each other is the way that uh, it, it's usually described if they have sexual union. So this verse here, that the father is the only one who knows the son, the son is the only one who knows the father, this was a very important verse in the early church. We're not going to go too much into all the Trinitarian implications of this. But I will say that this verse is a key step forward in developing the doctrine of the Trinity uh, because it is just so high in its Christology here. Uh, 
this solidarity between father and son, this, this union between father and son, this special intimacy between father and son. Uh, okay, so 27b is, I think, one of the most exciting statements here in this passage. So 27b is, is so comforting. It should be comforting here because Jesus is saying, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. So that sounds exclusionary, but then, thankfully, there's a wonderful little word, and, okay, in here, which says, no one knows except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Okay, so this is really, really beautiful here. So he's saying there's this tight, mutually exclusive relationship between Father and Son, and you can't even get into this knowing of the Father here because only the Son knows the Father, except there's a little and here, and that is that the and, the Son, is going to will to reveal the Father to the one that he chooses. Okay, so this sounds a lot like statements in John. It sounds a lot like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? He's saying that there's this, there's this special channel, this, there's, this, there's this exclusive access to the Father, which is through the Son. And if you want access to, to God the Father, it's got to run through, through Jesus speaking, through me, through, through Jesus. Um, John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So again, there's this exclusive statement that's made. Hey, nobody has really a concept of who God is except for the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, that one has declared him, okay? So I used the word exclusive before, and there's a sense in which that's true, but thankfully 27b tells us that this mutual knowledge here is gifted by Jesus to others, okay? So a few points I wanna make here, and unfortunately we don't have too much time to unpack this in, in great detail, but The implications of this are tremendous. Uh, first thing I'll say is that the father-son relationship is the axis around which the, the world turns, the universe turns, heaven and earth turns. That is the fundamental relationship in the entire universe, right? And the sooner we grasp that, the sooner we will understand the message of the Bible. There is this, there is this uh, picture of the earth turning around its axis. Everything in the universe turns around this axis of father and son. In the, in the created universe and in the heavenly spaces, everything revolves around this. So that's the, that's the fundamental relationship in all of reality that exists. And what, what it is to come to, to know God is to be adopted as, as children, as sons and daughters, to enter into this axis that is the heart of what salvation represents, is entering into this. And we, we see a glimpse of that here. And of course, another fundamental truth that just naturally falls out of this passage as those who want to be dependents is the gift nature of salvation, right? We, we can't strive for it or earn it. It is a gift. It is a free gift. Given by, given by the Son to the one who comes to him. I say this a lot. I will say it again. 
especially in our settings, we have to be very, very careful to avoid any sense of earning or anything like that. That is just, oh, it breaks my heart whenever I hear someone veer at, at, towards that, that edge. It is toxic. It is destructive. We never want to go anywhere near that. Uh, the, everything we have ought to be construed as receptive, as dependent, as a gift of God. It, it is easy sometimes to overreact to Protestant excesses, but in this case, it is not a Protestant excess. This is absolute, 100% true. For anybody who's a true Christian should understand that what we have is, is been given to us by, by God's free gift. Okay. So, as I, as I conclude here, I want to I just go a little bit deeper into this, this final notion of what is this father-son relationship here. So, I mentioned Jesus has disappointment. He's pronouncing these woes. He said even before that, hey, uh, we, we, we played the flute, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. Uh, like, no response here. That's, man, that's a terrible thing if you... You're calling forth a response and you don't get it. I'm sure you've had small experiences like that where you send a message and nobody responded to my message. Um, sometimes I give, a, I give a sermon and everyone's just like, look, it's just totally flat. And like, I don't get any feedback. And I'm like, oh, terrible, terrible, right? And, and, uh, and here Jesus is doing way more than any of that. He's poured out his whole life here, giving himself and, and has met, been met with rejection. But he responds with, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And I want that to be our response, okay? I want that to be our, our reflex that we cultivate. It is, oh, so important. I want everyone to really strive for that. Watch. Watch when you face disappointment. Watch when you face uh, any kind of hardship there. I praise you, Father. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Okay, so he begins with praising God's ways, God's judgment. And I highlighted that he, he praises specifically this truth that God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, or he, he hides these things from the wise and, and prudent and reveals it to, to dependents, to minors. So he, he, he rejoices in that, but then he, he, he takes it further and he moves to, to remembering and rejoicing in this father-son relationship. Okay, so while there has been distrust lack of repentance, lack of faith, a lack of giving of self of man to God here, right? That's what Jesus was mourning. What here he is saying is he's rejoicing in this self-disclosure, in this self-giving of father to son and son to father, right? So in, in this world where he's surrounded by people that are holding back, that are holding back and, oh, yeah, I'm sure they were excited. I'm sure they loved hearing some of his truths. I'm sure they liked the miracles, but they were holding back, ah, for whatever reason, they didn't, want to, they didn't want to throw themselves sacrificially before Jesus. But Jesus' praise moves beyond God's ways into God's very person. While there may be resistance and limiting from the heart of man, there is no such limitation in the heart of God. I love what it says. The Father has given all things, in verse 27, to the Son. Though people may have put up barriers, may they, while they may have resisted, may they have somehow walled themselves off from God, from each other. Jesus finds joy in that everything, uh, he has everything for those who come to him and the Father has given him all things. What a reflex, okay? So I, do you see both of those now? So I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. 
So his, his immediate reflex is to go to his Abba, go to his father, and, and move to a place of intimacy, celebrate God's power, praise his judgments, and then to praise his person. Even when Jesus finds rejection from his hometown, he finds love and knowing in his father. The word here that's used for knowing, so yinosko is the, is the most common word for I know, and that is actually used here, but it's used with an intensifier, epi yinosko. So if you stick a preposition in front of a, a Greek word, a Greek verb, it intensifies it, right? So usually kata or epi would be the most common prepositions that would be used to intensify here. So this is not, this is like Jesus trying to express, like, no, like, I, let's go back and read this here. So, because I want you to feel it here. So in, in 27, he says, all things have been delivered to me by my father. And no one knows, Epigenosko there, the son except the father, nor does anyone know Epigenosko the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. So the implication is that you can also epigenosco the father, right? How awesome is that? This intense knowing, this personal knowing that is this axis around which the world turns. Jesus is, is setting us up for that. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave a, a cliffhanger here um, in a moment before, before we end. But uh, before I leave you on the cliffhanger, I'll say, I'll read you a, a quote from another author who says on, on this concept of Jesus as being the mediator, Jesus being the one, the only channel by which we can know God. He says, the father has given Jesus the sole prerogative to reveal him so that anyone who approaches God a different way will not find him. It's a powerful statement. The father has given Jesus the sole prerogative to reveal him so that anyone who approaches God a different way will not find him. Okay, there are a lot of ways out there that are advertised as ways to know God. But Jesus is here telling us in Matthew 12, 27, that he has the sole prerogative to reveal the Father. The expectation back in that day was that the teachers, the, the religious establishment, they had the primacy of position to reveal God, right? They were, I'm sure the vast majority of people looked up to their leaders. And even in modern Christianity, there's plenty of, denominations and especially liturgical groups that you have these these big shots with all the 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 hats and the staffs and the smells and the bells and all that and they're 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 the ones that are your access to god but here jesus destroys that idea it is it is our relationship directly to him that gives us access to god okay so my cliffhanger is that we're going to see next time, the next word that Jesus is going to say is, come to me, come to me, right? This is the perfect setup for one of the most beautiful statements in all of Matthew, come to me, and he's going to tell us what, um, what happens when we come to him. So stay tuned for that. I'm excited for, for what's going to be ahead in this gem of a section here in Matthew. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have opposed the proud and given grace to the humble, that this is only right and proper and that your judgments are just and we bow before them and we rejoice in them. We know that this is the, the right way. You have declared it to be right and we see this unfold 
day after day um, all around us with so many examples of, of people and circumstances and institutions where when we step away from humility, we are, 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 are passed over. We are, are left to our own devices. We are handed over to our own sin, and it is a cold and lonely place. We thank you, Father, that instead you have given a way, you've given us, given us a channel, an access point through the Son to know you in a personal way, not an, an intellectual achievement, but to know you personally. What an exciting thought. Thank you, Father, that you have given us this way in Jesus. And we look forward to having Jesus be our instructor in Matthew 12 as we come to him. We pray these things in the name of the Son.